0: I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to our text this morning, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. Feel free to use a Bible in the pew pocket in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 to 34. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the blood and body of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment. And the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come.
1: There are two points in this text that I want to draw out this morning from all the dozens of points that could be made in such a long passage of Scripture. The first point is this. Celebrating the Lord's Supper is a celebration of how Jesus established the New Covenant. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of how Jesus established the New Covenant. And the second point will be this. The New Covenant creates and controls local churches. The New Covenant creates, brings into being, and controls or shapes the life of local churches. Point number one, I find in verse 25. It says, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So each time we take the cup in our hands and drink it, we are to remember that it is by the bloodshedding of Jesus that the covenant was established. This cup is the new covenant in or by the instrument of my bloodshedding. There would be no new covenant, no covenant between us and God by grace had Jesus not shed his blood. Now, let me read the terms of the new covenant to you just so that they're fresh in your mind, from Jeremiah 31:31, following. The prophet said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now, that's the phrase that Jesus said was in the blood of Jesus or by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, this promise has been fulfilled. The days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the old covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant. Now, listen, here are the terms. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will forgive their sins and I will remember their sin no more. So in this new covenant by the blood of Jesus that relates us to God, he pledges to forgive sins, to put his law within us, to write it on our hearts, to be our God and to make us his people. Which means that this covenant is not just a possibility held out to the world, not just a possibility, it is a creation. It is not something that God proposes It is something he also accomplishes. The certainty of it does not lie within our response. The certainty of it lies within his commitment to forgive our sins and write his law on our hearts. The new covenant and its unique terms over against the old overcomes the two big problems that separate his people from him. The first problem is guilt owing to sin. And the new covenant solves that problem by saying, I will forgive their sins and remember them no more. So the new covenant has in it a stipulation whereby God commits himself to cancel sin. And that happens in the bloodshedding of Jesus. He takes our guilt upon him. And when his blood is shed, ours doesn't have to be. So the first problem is. ...is overcome in the terms of the new covenant. I will forgive their sins and remember them no more. The second problem is rebellion in the human heart. And that problem is overcome by the stipulation which says... ...I will write my law upon their hearts and I will put it within them and they shall be my people. In other words... It won't be any longer that the law is written merely on tablets of stone outside us, pressing itself on us, rebellious creatures who push it away and say, no, I want my own way. It won't be that way anymore. In the new covenant, God doesn't just write on stone out here. He takes his pen by the Spirit, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and he writes it on the inside so that we experience the law now, not as a pressure from without, but as us within Liberty from within. Remember after Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. He says, against such there is no law. Meaning, the Spirit writes what we ought to do on our hearts. He changes us from the inside out. The new covenant is the reaching of God inside to write His law upon our hearts. Here's the way Moses put it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will someday, in the distant future, He didn't know when or how, but He saw it coming. He was the prophet. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God. won't be a question. The commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, with all your mind. In the new covenant is not merely a commandment. It is also gift. God in the new covenant commits himself to circumcise the heart so that the heart will love God. In other words, he cuts off the foreskin of rebellion. He throws it away. And we're new. The new covenant is not just a possibility. It is an accomplishment. It is a creation. It is a work of God's sovereignty in our lives. That's why you will be his people and he will forget your sins forever. Here's the way Ezekiel put it. Chapter 36, 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to observe my ordinances. The allegiance of the human partner in the new covenant is not up for grabs. You hear that? The allegiance of the human partner in this covenant between God and man, the allegiance, the fulfillment of covenant stipulations is not up for grabs. God's going to do it. I will write my law. I will circumcise your heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I'm going to make sure this works this time. That's the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. Now, let me read you a a New Testament two verses that takes all of that and gathers it together in a beautiful benediction. It's Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Let me read it to you. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good to do His will, working in you that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory forever and ever. See, did you hear it all? The blood The covenant and the inner working, the writing of the law, the circumcising of the heart, the putting in of the spirit, the causing to walk, the working of that which is pleasing in God's sight. God is not leaving the new covenant up for grabs. He is sovereignly doing. The church will prevail. Satan cannot defeat the church. Human will cannot defeat the church. The new covenant people of God are secured by the sovereign initiatives of God, not only to fulfill his awesome covenant oath, but also to fulfill our side of the deal. You did not get saved on your own. You did not come to church this morning on your own. You do not love Christ on your own. You don't read the Bible on your own. You don't pray on your own. You don't have one good will on your own. God is at work in you to will and to do His good pleasure. And ours is to fall on our face with incredible gratitude if we find within ourselves the slightest whiff of a desire for God. Today's text says the Lord's Supper is a celebration of how Jesus established this new covenant. He shed his blood, and in the infinite worth of shedding his blood, he secured everything I've just been talking about. He bought it. We're not worth it. He's worth it. We get it because we're in him by faith. I love that hymn that we just sang. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me In the whelming flood, when all around my soul gives way, He then is all my help and stay. I am not my help and stay. My oath, it may be that in my covenant relationship with God, I'll take an oath. It may be in my covenant relationship with God, I'll take some covenant vows. It may be I'll shed my own blood. But that will not be my hope and stay. My covenant, my oath. My bloodshedding may happen, but it is not that on which I stand when everything around me is giving way. What I stand on is the irresistible, sovereign covenant initiatives of God to choose me, to destine me, to call me, to quicken me and make me alive, to die for me, to justify me. To put His Spirit within me, to write His law in my heart, to work in me that which is pleasing in His sight, and one day to most assuredly glorify me as surely as His blood is of infinite value. Because that's on which I stand. Without that, I will go down when everything around me gives way. It is a glorious gospel. It's the glorious salvation. The new covenant means God does it and God gets the glory. And we submit and we rejoice and we bask and we bathe and we follow and we obey. For He is at work in us to will and to do His covenant good pleasure on our behalf. Point number two. The New Covenant creates and controls the existence of local churches. Now, the reason I stress local churches in this point is not to deny the reality of the universal church, the body of Christ composed of redeemed from all kinds of denominations and churches. I believe in that. It's glorious. The reason I focus on local churches is because in our text, that's what's being referred to. That's what's being wrestled with. That's the way the covenant concept is being applied. That's who the people of God are when God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. In this chapter means the church at Corinth is mine and they're acting out of sync with the covenant. Let me show you where I get this. Verse 18 has a... A word in it that's real important to see in context. In the first place, Paul says, responding to this situation, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. Notice the word church. When you come together as a church, this is not the universal church. This is a local church. When you come together as a church, that is as a local expression of the universal body of Christ. We need to get real clear in our minds now. God wills. We know it from this verse and numerous other passages. God wills that there not just be a mystical number of people out there individually connected with the head, composing an unseen body from age to age. That's gloriously true, but that's not the only thing God wills. God wills that local, definable, accountable, discernible, visible expressions of that reality happen in local places called churches. That's right there in verse 18. When you come together as a church, believers gathered for worship and ministry, God wills it. Now, Paul is wrestling with one of those churches because they're, making a mess of things. Their love feast is a sham in verse 21. And he rebukes them in verse 22. Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. And then, verse 23, he brings in as an argument or a foundation or a basis for why they shouldn't be living this way. Some eating and others having nothing. Some getting drunk and others having nothing. Why they shouldn't be living that way. He brings in as an argument this for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. And then he gives them the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, what's going on here? Right at the heart of the Lord's Supper institution is this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So what he's saying is this. When you gather together to celebrate the Lord's table and you have that meal ahead of time and you act so unlovingly and insensitively and unkindly to one another, you are living out of sync with the covenant. This meal that you're about to celebrate in a solemn way represents the covenant that has been established between you and God and between you and each other. Therefore, the covenant has implications for how to behave to each other. This is where I get the point. The new covenant not only creates, but controls the church, shapes the church. The way we walk out of this room this morning ought to flow from the covenant. Our covenant with God by grace and his initiative and our covenant with each other to reflect the law written on our heart. These people who were porking out while the poor had nothing, they were acting so out of character with the law that they claimed to be written on their heart that Paul was going to raise the question, whether they were even genuine. He said, I know that there need to be divisions among you that the genuine among you might be manifest. He held out the possibility that in a visible church, there are unreal believers, fakes, hypocrites. And there are in every church. People that are putting on a show every Sunday do not have any living vital relationship with God. And he's saying that ought not to be so because the covenant means law written on the heart. When a number of believers comes together to form a church, they ought to think something like this. We are bound to God by a new covenant, which he has taken the initiative to establish with us. And not only that, but since we're bound to God, we are also bound to one another in covenant. We should commit ourselves to one another to live a certain way. And that is the biblical and theological foundation of the church covenant. And I invite you to turn to the back of your worship folder where I have printed our church covenant. And uh, if you're a member of this church or you're thinking about someday becoming one, I encourage you to, uh, to do this. And put it in your Bible or somewhere. And uh, in the next three or four weeks, read it and pray over it and think about it. We're not going to read it corporately until March 7, but I'm going to preach on it in the coming three weeks. Our church covenant was written in 1853 by a man named J. Newton Brown. It was actually a revision of an 1833 covenant written by the New Hampshire Conference of Baptists But it was so drastically rewritten that I think it's fair to say it dates from 1853 in the Baptist Church manual written by J. Newton Brown. The concept of a written church covenant in which church members pledged together to be the church for each other goes back at least as far as the early 1500s as people in the dawn of the Reformation were beginning to recognize that perhaps it is biblical to be a congregationally formed church. The Bible does not say explicitly, thou shalt have a written church covenant, any more than it says, uh, thou shalt have marriage licenses, or thou shalt uh, have wedding rings, or thou shalt take marriage vows, for that matter. The Bible doesn't say that explicitly. But for those of us who are persuaded that a congregational church government is biblical, the concept of God's covenant with us necessarily works itself out in terms of a covenant with one another. Bethlehem Baptist Church does not exist by virtue of the vote of a presbytery. That is, the gathered elders from churches in a district. Bethlehem Baptist Church does not exist by decree of a diocesan bishop. In other words, we don't believe that the most biblical form of church government is Presbyterian or Episcopalian, bishops or presbyters outside the church forming and guiding local churches. We believe that local churches come together by covenant and rule, govern themselves, choosing their ministers, gifts being raised up from within, exercising discipline among themselves. And that has caused in congregational life over the last 500 years the covenant to take on a very special significance. Because if you ask, how do a group of people who claim to believe in Christ become a church when no authority and power from outside is saying, you are now a church? The answer becomes, we became a church by covenant. We became a church by a group of people gathering together and covenanting in a solemn pledge before God to be church for each other and for the world, and for the glory of God. Let me read you a definition of church covenant from Charles DeWeese, who has written the most recent history of the covenant idea in the history of the church. Here's his definition, and it's a good one, I think. A church covenant is a series of written pledges based on the Bible, which church members voluntarily make to God and to each other, regarding their basic moral and spiritual commitments and the practice of their faith. One way to conceive of it is this. A church, a local church without a covenant, is like a marriage without vows. Neither marriage vows nor church covenants are outlined explicitly in the Bible. But the reason we have marriage vows is because what is outlined in the Bible is the very essence and nature of marriage as a covenant commitment in which two people come together and make pledges and promises and covenants with each other to be what they are for each other, husband and wife, for nobody else until they die. That's the very essence. That is made plain in the Bible. And so vows just follow as the day, the night. Now, same in a church. A church covenant is not written out in the Bible in any terms, but the very nature of a church whereby a people are united to God by the new covenant and are called then to be the people of God for one another and to live a certain way, as our text says, necessarily means, well, if we're going to be a people for each other, we have to either say so or not. I mean, you might not say it. You might say, I don't like to say it. But it helps to say it if it's true, if we're going to be a people for each other, if we're going to make promises to each other to love each other and stand up for each other and hold each other accountable and be a church for each other, it's good to say so. That's what a church covenant does and is. Now, let me make two qualifications, clarifications. I do not mean in this analogy between marriage and the church that it's a sin to leave a church and go to another one. I'm not saying that the analogy with marriage is that tight. The reason it's not that tight is because there is a bigger body. There is a bigger covenant people than Bethlehem. There isn't a bigger marriage that you should belong to than the one you're in. It is right to stay in marriage. It is not necessarily always right to stay in the same local body. So do not construe me as I press this issue hard about the beauty and the glory and the preciousness of our covenant unity that I'm implying you can't leave this place. You can. Some are called other places. Some move other places. Some come to convictions that make it inappropriate for you to be in this covenant community. And there are many reasons why people move from one body to another. That's not sinning as long as you pray that through and make it for good and holy Reasons. The second qualification and clarification is to say that we are glad and it is not wrong when people worship with us and receive ministry from us and in many ways minister to us who are not for one reason or another free to make the covenant commitment. For example, people are here as students for a short time and may want not to release themselves from the covenant commitment they have to a home church. Another example would be moving through here temporarily in business and wanting to worship here for six weeks. Sir. Another reason is that you might be coming here because you love everything about this church except fill in the blank. Baptism or something. A lot of, We have a number of people in those kinds of categories. Now, when I stress covenant life here, which we're doing in these days, I'm not saying the only people that belong in this room are the real covenant committed. That's not true. I realize the soft edges of this reality. And we want to have our arms wide to unbelievers to worship here. I mean, to come and try to worship until they get to be believers. We we want to be an open-armed place where people right off the street can come And we want people who are questioning and wondering, you know, is what you believe really biblical? Can I really fit into a a church that takes stands like you have in your church covenant and in your doctrinal statement of faith? That's fine. We've had people here for seven years before they make that kind of commitment, and longer. And so we we don't twist any arms to say, you're going to occupy the pew, you've got to join. Nevertheless, Bethlehem exists as a church, a definable, distinct, accountable, visible church by virtue of a covenant. Without it, we would not be an authentic church. Let me read the first paragraph to you as we close. I'm going to pick this up and talk about it more in the weeks to come. Having been led as we believe by the Spirit of God. Now, do you see where this begins? It begins with the sovereign, initiative-taking covenant work of God. We were led. We didn't just decide to be a church. We didn't just decide to get saved. We didn't just decide to believe in the Lord. We were led to the Lord having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord, Jesus Christ, as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized. Now, that's why we're Baptists. See, there the line is drawn between us and millions of genuine believers. Okay? In no way, in defining ourselves as Baptists, that is, Only being baptized upon profession of faith. In defining ourselves that way, we are not saying those who disagree are by virtue of that unbelievers or inauthentic. We're simply saying, as we read the Bible with consciences as clear as we can make them, this is what the Bible teaches the church ought to be. And we will be this with charity toward all who with the same conscience come to a different conclusion on that issue. More on that. In fact, I'm gonna, I know that there are many people who are attracted to this church by virtue of our theology, which is Calvinistic in putting the sovereignty of God at the center and the top. And many people in that tradition come out of a covenant theology which includes children in the sign of the covenant, and in the covenant family by virtue of infant baptism. So I'm going to tackle that whole issue. Because many people I think are thinking right now, well, how can you put such a premium on the covenant and our covenant life together and not do it the way the real covenant people do it? You know? Who give their children the sign of the covenant the way Abraham gave all of the male kids the sign of the covenant. Every male In the covenant, received circumcision, and now baptism replaces circumcision, and we ought to give the sign of the covenant to the infants and have them to be reckoned as part of the covenant family. Why don't you do that? Now, uh, either next Sunday night or two weeks after that, I'm going to talk about that. I'll announce it ahead of time because I'm not sure just how it's going to fit in. But we will come clean on why, biblically, we can take such a strong stand on this concept of covenant and yet still believe that baptism is appropriate for those who have made a profession of faith and not for their children. Finishing that paragraph, we do now, here's the covenant, we do now in the presence of God, angels in this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body, not the only body, one body in Christ. Take it home, pray over it, seek to understand it. And my prayer, and I hope your prayer will be that as we continue on, our roots will go deep. And when we come to affirm this in a covenant reaffirmation Sunday on March 7, we will be able to do it with joy and with understanding and that we will be the church for each other the way God calls us to be in the new covenant. Let's pray. I thank you so much, Father, that you have led us to receive the Lord, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. That you did not stand back, fold your arms, and wait and look to see whether we would use our dead, self-determining impotence to become Christians. But that you rather took the initiative And you wrote your law on our hearts and you circumcised our hearts and you put your spirit within us and you drew us and led us irresistibly to yourself and you transformed us so that we love you and so that we believe in you. And I pray now that as we move into the study of this covenant, you will unfold it to us in its biblical dimensions and create it anew within us so that our body will not only be the creation of the new covenant, but controlled by the new covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.